0: Welcome to the Carriage House Planning Report. I'm Casey Fult. I am the founder and principal of Carriage House Planning. And I want to welcome you today to uh, the first episode of what uh, a working title uh, we've got going here. We're going to call this the tack room. Um, if you think about the old carriage houses, you, uh, you had to, to saddle up the horses or at least uh, you know bridle them up and, and all the uh, important equipment used for the, the horses that would pull the carriages Uh, would be kept in the tack room. Um, And, you know, as as time went on, the carriage houses were converted to house motor carriages. And in most cases, the tack room was also converted to become really a a, a kind of a tool room or a tool shed. Um, In our case, we're going to call the tack room uh, because we're going to call it the tactical room. Tactical, as we look at markets and as we look at investing, tactical is sort of a shorter term perspective. It's looking at the uh, the ins and outs, not only of the daily markets, but the shorter-term trends, uh, whereas the secular, longer-term trends, um, more fundamentally driven and and kind of bigger picture, um, those are, are ultimately helping to define the general trend or tendency of the investment approach. Um, and they need to be absolutely a part of things. But when we're kind of in the weeds and we're dealing with markets that are moving in certain directions that might be uncertain or, or create uh, uncertainty, um, sometimes it's beneficial to be a bit more tactical, uh, be willing to not only make changes if necessary, but also just simply look at what's happening and not just ignore it. I find that uh, a lot of advisors out there, uh, you know, be it that they're strictly investment advisors or perhaps they are financial planners or perhaps they, you know, claim to be both and are neither. Um... <laughs> They they tend to either take the full fledged investment heavy approach of always talking about oh the you know you got to buy this and sell that and buy this and sell that and sort of you know in a way uh, exhaust their clients and and you know it, it can be fun and all that stuff but they're really not adding a lot of value that's that's typically um, you know studies show over and over and over again that that's uh, not going to yield the best results. Uh, but just the same, there's a lot of folks out there who um, have subscribed to this belief that that there's this uh, classic buy and hold model that you absolutely have to adhere to uh, regardless of conditions. And at Carriage House Planning, something that we're very fond of is the belief that the uh, the experience of investing has to be factored into the investments themselves. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm probably going to dedicate an entire episode to this conversation in the future, but something that I think is, is so easily left out in hindsight, you know, being 2020 as it is, uh, leaves a lot of investors uh, easy to assess what they, what they should have done or, or what they would do if they lived in the past through various market environments. But one of the things that can't hardly ever be fully captured in those conversations is how did it feel to do whatever that thing was? you know, the, uh, the market crash of 87, for example, um, it's easy to look at as, as it must have been terrifying, right? It had to have been this difficult. And for many people who are listening to this right now, you distinctly remember that day or those, you know, uh, preceding three days and, and, and the following three or five days. Um, but if we look at it just, again, kind of in a, in a strictly investment-forward perspective with the hindsight being 2020, we say, you know, in reality, you, you more often than not probably ended the year in the green uh, so long as you stayed invested through that given year. But, but that discounts how it must feel or how it did feel for so many people to witness that kind of hemorrhaging, on the day that that occurred or the couple days beforehand and the few days after um, of, of that of that given Monday. The, that, that's the experience of investing. Um, the same can be said for uh, you know a number of different markets the tech crunch uh, and the crisis of 2000 to 2002, of course the the most notable recent um, except for last year of course, but the most notable recent event of, of 2006 through 2009. Um, those experiences, there's a public zeitgeist, there's a general malaise, there is a uh, misery loves company <laughs> aspect to it all, and it makes the investment experience very difficult. And for that reason, more often than not, investors end up, while they have a great plan or a great uh, approach going into those things, They, because the experience is so difficult to, let's say, stay invested, if they have even the slightest... Uh, interest or inclination to, to, to take interest in these things, um, they tend to also make bad mistakes because the experience is more than they're comfortable handling. That's why a risk assessment is such an important aspect of an ongoing relationship with you and your investments and your investment advisor, whoever that individual may be, you know, constantly taking temperature of how you feel about that idea of risk. You know, if you, if you have an investment, uh, portfolio, that you've been cultivating over a given period of time. And, um, you know, it's, it's been rocky along the way, ups and downs, but generally speaking, you're up more than you are down and you receive a, a, a notable pay increase. For example, you may be so focused on a, the new job uh, or the new responsibilities that came with the job that gave you the pay increase uh, that you really don't even pay attention to the portfolio. But B, you're probably more capable of sitting through a decline because in your mind, you've got this earnings base that's increased. And um, for that reason, the experience of the downside of risk, because there is an upside and a downside, the downside of risk may not be as impactful to you. Likewise, though, if you have just recently decided to take a pay cut, or perhaps uh, you have a, a newborn on the way, and you know that you're Your work life is going to have to make a sacrifice to afford your family uh, the benefit that they need. Um, For that reason, you might be a little bit more tense about risk, even though, you know, at that phase in your life, presumably you're younger and, and most of your assets are probably in a 401k or IRA or something of the sort. You probably won't be touching that money for 20 or 30 years. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sit there and kind of endure whatever comes your way. So um, that's why tactical can be a valid component to things, and why, even though it may not result in the best overall outcome as you look back at things 5, 10, 15, and 20 years later, um, if you were to say, Oh, well, I should have bought and held. Yes, maybe you should have, but for what extra benefit in turn, what sleepless nights, you know, what number of sleepless nights did you have to get that extra little bit of return? Did that impact you in a way that you made only the best decisions along the way, or how many bad decisions did that cause you to make that you wouldn't have made if you you know were willing to take a more tactical approach? You can't prove a negative. There's no way to know for sure. But again, the experience of the investment is far underappreciated, I believe, in this overall industry. And for that reason, taking a tactical approach at times can be warranted and can be quite beneficial. So, uh, now that we've done, you know, five to seven minutes or so on on a concept, let's kind of get into the nitty gritty and take a look at what's going on. Today, we're recording on the 25th of February. We've seen, uh, you know, pretty pretty healthy selling in the big uh, tech names. There's been some good, uh, you know, relief or kind of uh, pressure release going on there. And uh, there's some renewed attention on the whole GameStop uh, stock. It does seem as though there's there's another little episode playing out there, um, and and you know we're always going to rush to try to find a, a pattern or a reason why something occurs. You know humans, uh, in our form, <laughs> we have this horrible horrible tendency to want to identify patterns everywhere we look, and while that is a great tendency for survivalism, because the sooner you can identify patterns, uh, the less time you can spend paying attention to certain things, and the more time you can pay attention to other things that may matter more, like, uh, you know, finding food for that matter. Uh, great survivalism tactic uh, or, or evolutionary uh, benefit or design benefit, however you choose to look at that, it's good for us for survival. It's really bad for us for investing. Um, we want to see these patterns. We want to watch them emerge before our eyes. And uh, the, the cold truth is rarely is there ever one given cause and more importantly, rarely is there ever a real pattern. There are a lot of things that coincidentally occur at a given time. Some of them are connected. Some of them are not. But they line up. They happen. We have to try to take the uh, initial kind of human inclination to do exactly what everybody's doing and identify a pattern and, and, and try to forecast exactly what that pattern is going to repeat. You know, A, B, A, B, A, B, A. What comes next? be, presumably. You know, that's that's our, our inclination. We have to draw back from that. And, and it's my job to look at things and say, okay, there's a lot of things I can't identify. There's a lot of things I'm not ever going to be able to identify. Um, so what are we doing? Well, if we look at the state of markets as a whole, um, we know for a fact that the past year to two years have been not only peculiar, um, but really in a post-coronavirus world, Um, we've seen one specific hand that has been notably more powerful and more prevalent than any other hand, and that hand would be that of the Federal Reserve. Um, Not to say that the Federal Reserve is solely responsible for propping up uh, the, the, the markets, but they have most certainly impacted markets in a way that is artificial and in a way that is potentially... Dangerous long term, but short term, it's been quite productive. The feedback loop here becomes an issue because uh, you know the the long term consequences are hard to see when you're so busy bathing in the glory and the in uh, the success of the short term decision. Uh, but that seems to be what the Fed does. They tend to always have done that, and um, they've gotten quite good at using a a, a classic um, escape clause. When asked about either bubbles or asked about anything that's kind of uh, of negative in the future, uh, they always say, "Well, nobody can can foresee these things." Um, and then once they do occur, they go, "Well, nobody could have foreseen these things, um, but now we'll take action to address it." And the problem is, is no, a lot of people do foresee these things. <laughs> these things can be foreseen, or at least they can be uh, evaluated, and decisions can be made today to avoid going down the road that would ultimately lead to the big catastrophe, rather, uh, you know, not go down that road and and potentially find yourself with a much smaller catastrophe. Um, But the Fed doesn't seem to be in any big hurry to do that. Now, with that, though, where we've also seen things getting artificially propped up is we've seen this this massive rush towards what are known as the stay-at-home stocks. These particular companies that just coincidentally happen to be the largest in a lot of cases, companies um, that are very highly capitalized companies that in turn represent a higher proportion of the major indices. Uh, the S and P 500 is is one that we'll kind of focus on, um, but these big tech names are ones that have been bought up because. Th- as far as the investment populace would be concerned, these are companies that are going to go about their business as normal, regardless of whether people are at home or away. And in some cases, their business is going to blossom because of it. For that reason, you end up seeing, uh, you know, the overall indices moving much more, uh, kind of in sync with these big names or these big companies. So the recent selling that we're seeing happens to be pretty localized in a lot of those big tech names. Um, at least in in just the most recent few days, but generally speaking, the kinds of selling that we're seeing really it, it's not broad market selling. Um, They're in in a, a very interesting larger cyclic or cyclical point of view. If we look at bigger market cycles, um, there was a high probability that at the end of February we would see a sell off. Now, even if we just look at our most recent few years. Um, the end of February, just February in general, has been a, a not so wonderful month. Uh, the kind of late Santa Claus rally, the the euphoria that comes out of the holiday season and into January, the kind of renewed optimism that comes with, uh, you know, the passing of the winter solstice. I mean, all these, some of these things you could, you know, maybe get accused of... of um, rubbing rubbing earth stones together and and looking at uh, astrology. But the reality is, is it does impact people. It does affect the way that we act and, and think. And for that reason, uh, January is typically going to be a pretty positive month. But then February comes around and that's when, you know, there's a, a kind of a malaise. There's a general sentiment decline. Uh, and, and this February is no different. But for that reason, you know, as, as we look at things, we have to say, OK, are we in a sustained selling pattern or are we in a position where this is really kind of steam blowing off the top? Um, this really isn't a big blowout. This isn't a huge explosion. This is just letting a little bit of pressure out. And, and in most cases, it does seem as though we are just kind of letting some pressure out. Um, if we look at the broader picture, there continues to be renewed optimism as far as the coronavirus goes. Um, You know, self-inflicted wounds are rarely, uh, you know, healed by the hand that inflicts the wound. Um, And and in the case of the self-inflicted wound called a government shutdown, the government is not going to be the solution. Um, They are so busy trying to convince everybody that, that the coronavirus is exactly what they've been telling you it is for the past year. They're so invested in making sure that they don't look like buffoons because this is not what you've been told it is. Um, that that they're not going to be the solution. The solution, though, is coming out of smaller businesses who are recognizing that they can kind of mitigate their own risks and be creative in how they work around the state-imposed limitations to doing business. We're seeing companies that are making uh, physical locale moves. Um, We're seeing companies that are pivoting out of the traditional workspace and moving into a more virtual workspace. And for that reason – there is some signs of optimism generally, regardless of what the government's doing and regardless of how they're trying to impose their will on everybody because of health or something to that effect. Um, so as we're, we're looking at the kind of selling we're seeing right now, it's, it does not appear to be sustained selling. Um, as it stands, when we look at, again, to use the S&P as an index of choice, I have what would be a very cautious support level at about uh, 34.98. Let's just call it 3,500 for rounding. Um, if we're currently trading, let's see here, where are we today just so we can use real numbers. We're at 38.36. So 3,500, um, you know that would take a pretty substantial decline there in in the overall price, about a 10% decline in the S and P 500 to hit what I would consider to be a, uh, a first line of, of, of support. Um, that particular support would be if it were violated, meaning if we were to go down below that, I would be looking to begin lightening up my, my domestic stock exposure. Um, currently, uh, again, we're, we're a pretty good hike away from that. Um, on on what would be my kind of catastrophic threshold or my red light threshold um that would be closer to 3088 those those two marks uh, 3500 and 3088 uh represent where I would consider uh action points to be now that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be shifts that will be beneficial in terms of of maintaining overall exposure, but shifting in terms of how that exposure is allocated. One of the big trends that you're gonna see right now catching some attention in the media and in the the general news is, is are we going through a growth to value rotation? Um, That's one that has yet to really give me enough evidence that it's occurring, but it's definitely making a very compelling case. There are two significant leaders that are typically grouped into the value stock space uh, sector-wise, and that's going to be energy and financials. Both of those sectors tend to be uh, dominant when it comes to value positions versus growth. Now, value is a very interesting term in the investment parlance simply because people define it in very different ways. A classic investor sees value as an undervalued company, a company who has future earnings well above what the market's currently forecasting or projecting or pricing at and using a price multiple or some other form of evaluation. An investor sees that as, oh, this is basically a stock on sale. The current market doesn't know how valuable it is in the future. Now, that particular um, uh, way of looking at value investing it kind of died or it got like looped up into other terminologies, which is kind of sad because it's it's really a, a critical fundamental aspect to value investing. But as, as far as funds go and as far as kind of the general parlance is considered, when somebody talks about a value stock, what they're really focusing on, and I hate to dumb it down so much, but they're saying these are dividend payers. These are companies that really don't have a lot of upside uh, uh, potential. They're not, they're not anticipated to grow. Instead, they provide you immediate value for owning them um, versus what would be the, uh, the, the equity growth aspect of owning a company for its growth potential. You're owning it because it currently rewards you with a value. Now, one would uh, look at this and say, OK, well, when was the last time value was popular? It, it's been quite a while. Um, value really hasn't been in favor ever since 2008 and nine. I mean, if we can go back that far, some would make a case that perhaps value was favorable up until 2011, but I think the real critical breakdowns occurred before then You say, well, what is a dividend in effect? It's kind of like sort of in a way having a unreliable uh, interest rate on a bond position. So instead of a bond that, uh, the, the borrower has to pay you the coupon with a dividend, you know they don't have to pay it, but if their company's stock price is dependent on paying it because people see it as a value stock, um, they're they're probably going to try as hard as they can to keep paying it. But they don't have a lot of upside growth potential, and that's why the financials market is in there and why energy's in there. It's not like they're going to have a radical new uh, invention that changes the world. They're not going to have a new computer model or car model or something like that that comes out. They're, they're pretty steady in terms of their product offering, but um, there's a potential for higher earnings. And for that reason, they may pay a higher dividend. And in a marketplace where you can't go buy a bond and really get a whole heck of a lot of yield out of it, a reliable income out of it, um, there is a, a chance that, that value stocks could take leadership um simply on the basis that they they can generate potential income now I see uh, a couple of things happening here if we look at the uh, kind of logic behind why they these two specific sectors financials and, and energy why they're probably moving up um, if we look at, at energy, um, I think something that's really discounted and this I can I can totally credit my my oldest brother for bringing a, a concept to my attention that, Back when when the coronavirus hysteria uh, broke out, we had all these people who uh, I I'm I'm still trying to sort it out, but apparently they were going to wrap toilet paper around their bodies um, and walk around like mummies or or something. But everybody freaked out about toilet paper. Toilet paper was the uh, the cause du jour of of hysteria or or you know why everyone was rushing out. You know it's like uh, batteries in Florida. I get such a kick out of it. Anytime a hurricane comes. Everybody rushes and buys up batteries, and that's because most people that are in Florida aren't from Florida originally, or they haven't been here long enough to realize that it's silly, but I, I I find myself so eager to ask them, so tell me, what what is it in your house that runs on batteries, or at least the kind that you're buying at the store? Because most things today are rechargeable to begin with. They don't have uh, replaceable batteries, but... You know, I, I digress. Um, when we're when we're thinking about the the whole toilet paper thing, something that my brother brought to my attention, and I'm gonna circle this back around. I promise you, to the energy world. Um, with toilet paper, I I he he happens to work in in the commercial. Um, Uh, sanitation products distributorship. So, so like the, all these products at these big commercial office buildings and and schools and, and all these commercial buyers, you know, they need toilet paper and hand towels and soap and, and, you know, various kinds of, of cleaners and sanitizers and all those kinds of things. His company is a distributor for these things. And, and I said to him, I said, so tell me, what's the deal with the, with the toilet paper from your perspective? And one of the things he said was something that wasn't being considered at the time. And this was right when kind of schools were shutting down and, and people were being asked to work from home if they could and, and all that. He said, we have a glut of commercial paper products, of commercial toilet paper, you know, that single ply stuff that's more like sandpaper. Um, but we, you know, nobody can get their hands on the residential or the, co- or the retail product. And, and that, that did kind of strike me as funny. I went, oh, I didn't even think about that. And he said, yeah, I so said, think about it. You know, a lot of people use the restroom at work or at school, whatever it is. And well, if these places are shut down, you know, they're still going to use the restroom. They're just going to use the restroom at home. And they're not going to be using this cheap, you know, uh, mass produced product. They're going to be using a product that's produced at a pretty consistent rate because it's bought at a consistent rate. And that rate is not at a commercial level. Well that is interesting but if we look at that in the energy space now energy applies to a lot of different things a lot of times we all rush to call you know energy gas Energy has a lot more going on than just the refined gasoline products that we put in our vehicles Yes, those particular products may be down in aggregate use but something that's up in return is things like uh, or things like, uh, home heating and, and air conditioning, general electric usage at home, uh, people who used to go to an office that would share, let's say, the load of, of you know, if, if you have a two-ton air conditioner or heat pump or, 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 you know, condenser, rather, on your home, you know, and it heats or uh, cools, and, and depending on winter, summer, you know, it takes care of of your of your house that's, you know, 2,500, 3,000 square feet, average uh, uh, you know, ranch-style house, You go to a a commercial environment, you know, you've got these big rooms, let's say in a school or or in a, a commercial office building. They don't require that much more energy to cool a much larger room. So the overall energy usage is increased when people are at home. That's also, you know, they've got devices that they're charging, they've got TVs on, they've got a variety of other things happening at home in the cold winter months. That's going to put a big draw on the energy space. Now that can be energy from, you know, production of electricity to energy and natural gas to energy that is, you know, coming from all the various sources that we derive our energies. That I think is discounted. So we see this push-up in energy prices, and we can't help but say, is this a sustainable long-term thing? Is this something where there was a shock to a system over a given period of time, and now there's an adjustment for kind of how we go about things? You know, Is is this going to last? Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say, um, but I think that has to be considered. The other thing that has to be considered when we look at financials is – taking a, a look at the just general lending space. Uh, are people borrowing more, borrowing less? Uh, are they capable of borrowing more, borrowing less? And ultimately, is the general environment going to be conducive for uh, uh, you know a benefit in the financial space? A lot of the financial stocks that have been leading are companies whose overall um, – revenues are highly impacted by the state of markets because they either are invested, they have uh, capital investment groups, they've got asset management, they have uh, investment banking, they have retail investment advisory or investment services. And if we've seen what the markets have done in the past, you know, 10 months, 11 months, again, at the hand of the Fed, of course these particular companies are going to be aggressively aggressively uh, moving upward in terms of their overall revenues and their their general well-being um, and you know there's the headwind of potential regulation that may come as a result of the administration um, I think that has to be considered but again we're, you know here we're talking about tactical short-term, all of a sudden, in the short term picture, there's been this big discussion. Is value going to be, our markets going to cycle into being value forward versus growth forward? I would say that, yes, the trend does look like value stocks are going to begin taking leadership, but I'm not going to rush into that in the short term. I need to see the weight of the evidence really begin to play out. And I want to see sustainability out of the value space, not to say that growth has this super bright future that can't be denied. I don't know that that's always, that that's going to be the case either. Uh, In fact, I would say that there are some significant headwinds for both. um, And, and that could potentially drive value higher because value inherently has a durability to it that growth doesn't. Um, But I'm not quite ready to, to call that one as kind of a, a, a certainty. Um, but again, you're going to be seeing headlines. You're going to be reading about that. Keep it in mind, but don't necessarily rush towards, uh, what might be a glistening object in the distance that turns out to not be, uh, you know, a gold coin, but instead is, is just a piece of broken mirror or something like that. Um, so that, that's kind of a a recap on the equity markets. I would say that we're not seeing sustainable long-term selling right now yet, uh, I do still foresee there being some significant notable cooling off in the markets come uh, late March, early April. I would be willing to even extend that into late April and early May. Um, there may be enough uh, kind of energy in the markets that, that could kick it a little further. But I would say as we approach the early summer we should begin to uh, be very vigilant for some more sustained selling, some longer selling, some more, you know, protracted selling. Um, one final comment I'll make there is an, another sort of headline piece that I'm seeing touted about between the, you know, in, in investment groups, uh, you know, the, the asset management groups that, that publish, you know, uh, public commentary. Goldman Sachs and, and J.P. Morgan and others are talking about this pent-up demand, this pent-up demand. We've been locked up. We have all this pent-up demand. And pent-up demand is one thing. I demand to spend money. But the question is whether the money is there to spend. Um, and and this is really going to be a chicken or egg kind of conversation because, you know, spending, unfortunately, is a key component to our economy. Um, we've certainly not had any problems spending on Chinese goods and, and the, uh, trade deficit, uh, blowing up to an extent that, that, you know, it's going to take quite a while to even get it back to where it was. But this, this pent up demand concept I think is, it, it sounds good. And in reality, it's probably very real. I will not deny that. In fact, I, uh, was on a, a, a quick weekend getaway trip to celebrate my wife's birthday this past weekend. And we stopped, um, on the way home We were driving through the Orlando area and and we are uh, pass holders for uh, Disney, for Disney World. And we wanted to get our kids just a little prize because we had been gone for the weekend and just something very small. And we also just wanted to grab lunch. So we stopped at um, Disney Springs, which is the big retail center and used to be downtown Disney. Now it's Disney Springs. We stopped there thinking, yeah, they got a lot of restaurants. Fortunately, we do live in Florida, uh, which is one of the best states as far as how they've handled coronavirus. Um, but, you know, we'll be able to buzz in. We'll get a bite to eat, pick up a little gift or a little something for our kids, and, and we'll get out of there. And, and I kid you not, um, it's one thing. I get the health screening and all that. A big company like Disney, they, they can't risk, you know, offending people by not doing it or, or offending the government by not doing it. Um, but the health screening is one thing, but the truth be told, there, there was a line that we waited in, um, that had to be, I, I estimated something to the tune of seven to 800 people lined up just to go through the health screening to get into this very large area. And it was packed in there. And these are high end retail stores. People were carrying around bags. So pent up demand. I will not argue (laughs) that that doesn't exist. I do think it's there. What I'm concerned about though is pent-up demand great and people have been borrowing and borrowing and borrowing over the past several months. A lot of people can't make the same money they used to. A lot of people are in a position where they're transitioning careers because their old career was so impacted by this. It's one thing to have demand. It's another thing to have the resource to exercise that demand. Um, I don't think we have that pent-up demands. uh in a sustainable fashion that that people are calling for, we might see a burst. We might see a burst where, if we finally get these you know power-hungry political figures to who who are so so supported by their by their loyal minions, if we finally get them to allow businesses to do what they do best, which is make risk-adjusted decisions for themselves, um, and businesses across the country can open back up fully, and people can make their own decisions on whether or not they would like to risk going out and risks come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, If that happens, we might see a burst of demand that's, uh, you know, realized, but the sustainability of that demand is not probable for the long term. Um, And and for that reason, I'm going to stand by my belief that we will probably see some prolonged selling starting in the summer and moving through the summer months. Beyond that, a lot of questions have yet to be answered as far as what this administration is going to try to do in their magic hundred days. Um, believe it or not, we're already, you know, nearing uh, the the first third of that, the end of the first third of that. So if, if they, you know, use that, quote unquote, magic window to do anything really aggressive, uh, I would say that that selling may come sooner. Um, this particular uh, group of individuals who seem to be kind of calling the shots... Um, they're not exactly what I would call small and mid-sized business friendly. And at the end of the day, the small and mid-sized businesses are the ones that need to thrive for the overall market to sustain the upward trend that it's in. The big companies themselves are great and wonderful. They will be okay. But the mid and smalls are the ones that are going to hurt the most and they're going to help the most. So if we don't see uh, any big aggressive moves out of Washington, D.C., I would say that that uh, you know any selling that comes is going to come and probably pass. Um, but if we see some big aggressive moves, I would not be surprised if we find ourselves in a position where whatever they pass, be it a minimum wage type of thing or a tax bill or something like that, uh, is because uh, people tend to do this. They they interpret it as positive, but the negative uh, long term effects of those types of policies um, will show their ugly head, and and that would be. Uh, you know, the, the reckoning, if you will, or at least the probable cause for reckoning. So, um, more on that in future episodes, uh, to try to keep things respectable in time. I, I do try to keep these under an hour and we're sitting here at about 40 minutes now. So I want to, I want to be respectful the rest of your day. Um, and, and I want to thank you for taking the time to, to sit with me while we talked about some of these things. I know I was a bit all over the place and that's sort of the way things feel right now. But uh, generally speaking, I would say you know keep keep your eyes up, keep your head up. Don't necessarily get bogged down with with the type of, of action that we're seeing in the markets right now. Um, be vigilant. Uh, but the the shifts that will be required will most likely not be required immediately. I do see though again some some changes are likely to come in the the you know three to four months ahead. Uh, but At the end of the day, decisions in our case at Carriage House Planning are made only when the weight of the evidence supports said decisions, and until then, while it may not necessarily be the most fun, uh, sometimes the best thing you can do is sit tight and wait to see the clearer picture play out. Thank you again. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and week ahead, and uh, if there's ever anything that Carriage House Planning can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us at carriagehouseplanning.com. Look forward to talking to you all and seeing you in the near future if possible. And otherwise, you'll be hearing from me next week. All right. Bye-bye.